0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Participate in McDonald's for a limited time.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: In this episode, we'll be taking a sideways look at one of history's most popular topics, the Tudors. Today's guests are Sam Willis and James Daybell, the team behind the Histories of the Unexpected book and podcast series. In lockdown, Sam and James have created a series of homeschooling history podcasts intended to get kids and parents excited about history. One of the wide range of topics that they cover is the Tudors, and that was the subject of this conversation you've created this homeschooling series of podcasts to help kids and teachers and parents get excited about history. Tudors feature quite heavily in the series. So why do you think that Tudors are always a surefire hit, especially with, say, the younger historians among
2: us? It's a perennial question, actually. What is it about the 16th century in Britain that is so interesting to everyone, not just kids, but to everyone, and I think part of it is about the the big personalities of the monarchs that you have. Who can fail to be interested in somebody like Henry VIII? Who is a you know he's a he's a really interesting character. He's a, he's a sort of an enigma in some ways. He's a, he's either a sort of puppet ruler or a psycho killer. And I, I verge towards the psycho <laughs> killer. Um, You know, view on him. This is somebody who had six wives, executed two of them, uh, had very close people and friendships working with him, and then seemed to be able to destroy people afterwards. But then you've got somebody like Elizabeth I, who again is a fascinating character, a sort of almost larger than life character. And also you've got some of the great transitions in the 16th century that are happening. You've got the the rise of Parliament. You've got the expansion of the realm. You know the the sort of unification of of the country in many ways. The expansion of the state. You've got um, exploration and trade. So it, it's absolutely fascinating. It's also a cultural melting pot. You know, this is the time of of Shakespeare um, and and other writers like that. So it's a it's a really fascinating period to get your teeth into. And it's also something that has captured the imagination of so many popular biographers and also people who write historical fiction. You know, a character like Anne Boleyn has had dozens and dozens of articles and books written about her. So much ink spilt on her. So there's something that has really captured people's imagination, I think.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you described yourself, James. Um, I remember we started doing our, our Tudors live show. You described Henry VIII as an egotistical maniac, which I completely agree with. I thought it was a wonderful way of putting it. But you've, you know, on top of the, the amazing personalities, you've got, well, so many stories that you could almost, you couldn't really sort of make them up. It's, it's like the very essence of history where, where the, the real richness of what actually happened is kind of more bonkers and more fascinating than, than, than any kind of fiction. That's what I really love that. And I think that's why people keep coming back to it.
0: As well as this um, royal soap opera that I think really captures people's imaginations, you of course take a kind of sideways look at this era and one of your homeschooling episodes focuses instead on everyday life in Tudor England. Why do you think it's interesting to look how normal people lived?
1: Um, Well, I I think one of the key points about it is it makes you feel close to the past. So one of the things James and I are always trying to do with Histories of the Unexpected is to inspire people to learn about history and to to realise that everyone is a historian in their own right. I don't think um, that you need to be trained to be a historian. I think you need to; be, it needs to be just sort of let out in you, essentially. And if you can find topics which people can identify with very easily, then that allows them to feel closer to the past, closer to their understanding of history, and it makes them become a historian in their own right. And if you do something like everyday life, it makes that uh, connection with the past much more easily, rather than saying, okay, let's write about Tudor warfare. And I mean, it's very difficult for anyone to say, oh, I imagine exactly what that would have been like. But if you can do something completely the same, like I, I, I love the fact that the Tudors ate currants. And I can go and have a current in, in my kitchen and I can, in a funny little way, just I, I can be transported back to, uh, you know, 1573 somewhere and to to a Tudor person having a current. And exactly the same way you can if you talk about accidents, which is actually what we we talk, how we get into Tudor life. It's something that's very human. It's something that's kind of, it's completely understandable and you know when you stub your toe or you break your leg something a bit nasty and it and to to realize that people in the past were doing exactly the same thing really does help you um, appreciate that the past isn't full of alien people it's full of real people like you and me and they are stubbing their toes and they are slamming their fingers indoors and all sorts of horrendous things happening to them and um, james is the man to talk about accidents there
0: I was going to say, how are accidents the way into everyday life in Tudor England? Well, I think
2: I think if we if we backtrack a little bit as well and talk about why we should, why as historians we should study the everyday life. This is a this is a reaction to that sort of high political history of kings and queens, this sort of diet of of monarchy or of wars and events, and actually it's connected to a whole swathe of research interests that have gone over the last hundred years or so, you know, post Karl Marx um, and the sort of history from below um, and looking at history from the bottom upwards and looking at how ordinary people lived. And it presents a challenge because one of the reasons that historians for so long concentrated on on events and kings and queens was because there was so much evidence for that. And actually, it's much more difficult to get at ordinary people's lives. It's much more challenging because you have to look at different kinds of sources, which connects me to the question that you, in fact, asked, which was about accidents. Because with coroner's records, you have thousands and thousands of these brilliant documents that survive. Every time there was an accidental death in Tudor, England, Um, a coroner would be called in to basically look at what happened. And coroner's records, written in Latin, um, would detail the accident and would give all sorts of incidental information about it. And there is a brilliant project uh, run by uh, Stephen Gunn, Professor Stephen Gunn at Merton College, Oxford, uh, that over the last sort of five years or so, probably more, has been building this enormous picture of everyday life in Tudor England from this particular resource. Uh, And so we've used that a lot. And it really allows you to get at all sorts of things. And one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is how you use it to look at the history of childhood, because children are particularly difficult to pin down for the Tudor period. We do have some evidence of children having written their own letters. There's a diary that survives right from the end of the period, uh, and Clifford, although people argue about whether it's a diary or not. But there's very little written by children themselves. And so what it means is you have to go to a different kind of historical source. You know, children are often written about more than actually writing themselves. But with these, with these coroner's records you have thousands of examples. So you can get this very detailed picture of children's everyday life from the circumstances in which they died. So you can have a look at the degree to which children, you know, girls um, followed mothers around the house, fell into fires or, or escaped their mother's attentions, walked outside and were run over by carts. That gives you a sense of how young girls were brought up within the household. Boys, often accompanying fathers to work, you know, would get would be killed in particular kinds of accidents related to the workplace. So you get there a sense of how the upbringing of girls and boys might differ. You can also reconstruct the imaginative world, the playful world of children, because children involved in various uh, play activities. Um, have fatal accidents. So, for example, climbing trees and breaking heads, um, and you know, and drowning in rivers. And there's a young girl uh, that we that um, that this project that Steve Gunn uh, had, um, had has been working on. They uncovered a a girl called Jane Shakespeare, um, who in 1569 drowned, age sort of two and a half, in. Uh, in a river, when she was out picking marigolds, and the river was very near to where Shakespeare was born in Stratford upon Avon, and they've conjectured that this may well be uh, uh, the sort of the, the, the sort of embryonic idea of Ophelia uh, in Shakespeare's play Hamlet. So we can we can we can use we can use accidents to uncover everyday life of ordinary people, but also of children.
1: Yeah, we, we know um, from this that they were um, drowned in cesspits, mauled by bears, crushed by carts, mangled by windmills, trampled by horses, cut by thighs, and one guy manages to shoot himself
2: in the head with his own longbow. It's like trying to reconstruct Tudor marriage from the church courts, uh, you know, where everything falls apart and it's uh, and it's about conflict uh, rather than actually the everyday working of a... Of a of a relationship. What you're looking at is conflict.
0: As well as those sources that you've just talked about there, are there any other sources or objects from Tudor England that you think really bring what it was like to live then to life?
2: Oh, absolutely. Gloves. I'm obsessed with gloves. Uh, I've been working on gloves for several years now and, in fact, writing a book on gloves as we speak. And I think gloves allow you to look at all sorts of rituals and customs of everyday life. So and gloves are actually given as gifts. They are used in all sorts of ways to pledge allegiance, to insult people. They're connected to love, to courtship. And also, bizarrely, there are various superstitious practices that are related to gloves. Now, we've written a chapter in our book, Histories of the Unexpected, about chimneys, and one of the things that we looked at there was the way in which shoes and other objects were inserted into chimneys in order to ward off evil spirits. I've been doing some some work recently and discovered it's not only shoes that end up there in order to protect the household from evil spirits. I've discovered 150 different examples of gloves, not just from the Tudor period, Uh, but quite a few from the Tudor period, but also from later periods that were inserted into the chimney to ward off evil spirits, which tells you an awful lot about everyday life. So there we are, gloves.
0: Another episode in your homeschooling series um, looks at Elizabeth I versus the Catholics, as you call it. What topics does that allow you to explore well
1: we did um, with all of these homeschooling episodes we've taken an idea and what we wanted to do was was to choose an idea that kids can identify with but then link it to the curriculum and so in this case, um, the episode is on the history of hiding. Um, and so we, we speak very briefly about the history of hiding across across time. There are all sorts of other wonderful examples of people hiding for one reason or another, whether it's um, hiding, you're your king of England, you're hiding up an oak tree, or whether you are Anne Frank and trying to avoid the Nazis. And in this one, we um, talked about it specifically in relation to um, priest holes and to uh, Catholic priests hiding from people who are hunting them out under the reign of Elizabeth I.
0: Perhaps you could just shed a bit more light on priest holes for people who might not know too much
1: about ah, them. Um, James, you want to give a bit of the background of why these people were hiding?
2: So one of the reasons that they are hiding is because Catholicism after 1570 becomes outlawed in England. Um, so there is the there's the excommunication of Elizabeth I, which basically means that Elizabeth is um, is basically um, the gloves are off and she's open to be removed and assassinated. And before this, um, Elizabeth was quite tolerant of Catholics, more or less. Uh, she didn't famously didn't want uh, to see windows into men's souls. So so long as people. Outwardly conformed to the Anglican Church, went along to to uh, the church on a Sunday. Um, they would, they would, they were fine. But once the Pope deposes Elizabeth in this in this way in 1570, um, things are much more difficult for Catholics. And one of the things that they start doing is they start, um, you know, tracking down priests and not allowing Catholic mass. And the priests are so crucial to Catholic Mass. At the same time, on the continent, you've got a series of measures that are training up priests and sending them out into England in order to administer to the Catholic faithful. Um, and the problem is that these priests are hunted down and captured and tortured, and but yet they are so crucial to the way in which Mass is celebrated in the Catholic faith. And so what you find is that there are regional networks that connect houses and Catholics together that allow priests to go from one house to the other in order to be part of this Catholic mass. And what they do is they build into these houses places for these priests to be hidden. So actually looking at the practice of hiding gets us right to the heart of The nature and culture of Catholicism in Elizabethan England.
1: That's right. You've got these priest holes which are built into chimneys very often, Um, cupboards, uh, rooms, their own kind of complex hide systems. You've got basic cubby holes. You've got more complex uh, passages behind stairways, underneath floorboards, all sorts of interesting places. I've recently found one actually, which was, it's, it's like a double blind. It's quite clever. So you find a priest hole, But actually, the priest hole is behind the priest hole that you found. So they were designed in the anticipation of them being discovered, some of them, um, with another layer of hiding behind. And um, they're still being um, discovered and understood uh, by uh, house historians and archaeologists nowadays. We came across something recently that an amazing three-dimensional Tudor reconstruction of a tower in a castle. And it's basically the the priest hole is too small and too difficult to get to. So so members of the public can't actually go and visit it. It's a a real problem if you've got a, a historic house with a priest hole is how you get large numbers to appreciate what you've got. But by doing 3D kind of laser scans of it, you can create Um, These three-dimensional images were kind of a fly-around of it, showing where the cavity is within a room, behind the stairs, or wherever it is. So actually, uh, it's one of the great examples of how modern technology is helping us understand the past.
0: On the note of sneaking around and being covert, you also draw Tudor stories into um, an episode you've got on invisibility. How so?
1: Well, um, yeah, that one is all about Tudor spies, and um we, we actually we wrote a chapter in our book on the history of shrinking, um, which was one of the most enjoyable things I've done in histories of the unexpected. Um and we, we came across this this advice of how to write so small you can write a tiny little letter and then you could actually hide it inside an egg. And this was one of the ways that Tudor spies managed to communicate with each with each other.
2: In Thomas Lupton's A Thousand Notable Things, isn't
1: it? That's right. So it's A Thousand Notable Things and one of them is hiding a letter in an egg. And I really want to know what the other 999 are. I'm actually going to go through them. I think they'll blow our minds about how clever the Tudors were. But the principle here is invisibility. It's We we looked at it in terms... You can do invisibility in all sorts of different ways. We were thinking about it specifically in terms of making communication Invisible, so invisible ink and hiding messages in eggs, and um, I think James could also explain a little more about the background to that.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is this is this is again the same sort of period as the Catholics are being uh, persecuted and Catholic priests are hiding. Um, you've got um, spies abroad and at home, and so there. This is a time of Walsingham's spy networks. It's a time when there are all sorts of assassination attempts on Elizabeth. There are all sorts of religious problems across Europe between the counter-reformation powers and the sort of Protestant Reformation powers. Um, So all of this is going on. And then the backdrop of this is there are all these covert practices to communicate Um, And so various uh, ingenious techniques have been invented. It's a time when we see all sorts of complicated cipher systems. We've got Mary Queen of Scots communicating secretly in ciphered letters carried in beer barrels. And then we've got these two examples. One is hiding a letter inside an egg uh, and the other is about writing an invisible ink in orange juice. And This is famously described in a man called John Gerard's Latin autobiography. Gerard was a a Jesuit priest, and he describes uh, how his female sustainers outside of the prison have smuggled into the prison uh, gifts of oranges for him, and the orange was wrapped in a sheet of paper. And he then uses the orange in really interesting ways. Firstly, he uses the peel of the orange to form rosaries and crosses, which are part of his Catholic practice. The kinds of things that he would have ordinarily had are not allowed in prison, so he improvises these. He then uses part of the flesh of the orange to bribe the illiterate jailer to smuggle in and out messages, and then he uses the orange juice itself. He retains a bit of that and uses that to write secret messages on the sheet of paper in which the orange was wrapped and then has them smuggled out. And the way that you are able to read these messages, when, they, when his friends receive a letter from him, the first thing that they do is go to the fire, warm the letter, and then warming the orange juice means that you suddenly are able to see visible the secret message that he has has written. You can do it yourselves at home over a candle or even using a hairdryer for it. At the end of every episode that we have, there is a task. And so if you have a look at our our episode on invisibility, um, one of the things that we ask you to do is to do your own secret correspondence. Either have a go at trying to put something inside an egg and we give you instructions precisely how to do that, which involves strong vinegar. Um, and then you can also have a go at making invisible ink out of orange juice and fool all your friends and family during lockdown.
1: I, I hereby also give permission to all children listening to this to make your own priest hole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please do so. Um, if you if you if you can't make one then just turn the understairs cupboard into a priest hole.
0: still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: Although probably one of the things that surprised me recently was doing some work on cannibalism, you know, was was part and parcel of Tudor medicine. So I think that was probably one of the most weird things that I'd come across.
0: There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. At participating McDonald's for a limited time.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: Just to hark back to something you said at the beginning, James, you said that this is a, an era that's defined by amazing personalities. And I was just wondering who some of the figures from the Tudor era are that most fascinate you personally?
2: Well, someone who has always really fascinated me, because I'm somebody who's built their career uh, working on gender history. Uh, and I started off working on women letter writers. And one of the women that has always fascinated me is a woman called Bess of Hardwick uh, who is probably well known to your listeners. This is a woman who had married four times, um, ended up married to the Earl of Shrewsbury with whom she had a spectacularly um, awful falling out. Um, so much so that the Queen has to intervene but during the period of their marriage she um, marries her own um her own child uh, to to his uh, offspring uh, so that she basically cements the Shrewsbury title um, you know for irrespective of whatever happens to her um, and her husband. But she's also the keeper of Mary Queen of Scots. Uh, she's got a fantastic collection of letters that survive which enable you to piece together really interesting episodes in her life she has this massive intelligence network so she's getting all sorts of correspondence coming to her from uh, reporters throughout europe so she's she's you know knows exactly what's going on politically she's a great builder she she famously builds hardwick hall during this period and and you know and her ego, her ego and identity is stamped all over the outside of the property with her initials carved in stone. Um, we can get at uh, we can get at her sewing with Mary Queen of Scots. Um, so we know all sorts of things, we know all sorts of things about her. she's absolutely fascinating. Um, she's one of the people that I think I was I was once asked whether who which three people uh, would I want to, uh, share a dinner with and I think I, I think I would like to share a dinner with her and various other people uh, including Otto von Bismarck though I'm not sure how well the two of them would would get together, <laughs> not because I think she'd she'd be a particularly nice person. Um, I think she'd be quite unpleasant, to be honest. Um, but I'm uh, but I'm she's somebody I've studied for a long time, uh, and I would really just love to know the real her.
0: How about you, Sam?
2: I feel like I'm
1: overwhelmed with a whole host of Tudor pirates. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, piracy was 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 so prevalent on the coast but everyone associates the coast with being somewhere where you're nice and you i i associate the coast with ice creams and pasties and going for a surf um but at the time um it was it was a a place of fear and uncertainty and torture and greed Um, and so our I think it's really interesting how our relationship with the British seaside coast has changed. And the way to get at how violent and frightening it was is to look at Tudor pirates. Um, And interestingly, also how well protected these pirates were, particularly down in Cornwall, around Falmouth. Um, And they weren't just... random pirates they were pirates very very high up very wealthy people they were landowners um and they had had strong links to, especially to the elizabethan court so um i'd have to wait and think but um i'm probably not drake i think drake's a bit obvious but um someone one of one of drake's <laughs> contemporary pirates who was uh, probably a landowner in cornwall um i would like to meet that that non-specific person
2: okay so i've got another one for you this is a young boy called james bassett who we know about from the last Letters and any of you interested in Tudor history, if you haven't come across them already, go and have a look at Muriel St. Clair Burns' six volume edition of the Lyle letters that came out uh, with Chicago University Press quite a while ago in the 80s, what you've got there in volume four is all of Honor Lady Lyle's correspondence with her children and there is a beautiful little selection of letters from James Bassett when he is about 10 years old. Now Honor Lady Lyle is married to Arthur Lyle who is Lord Deputy of the Garrison in Calais, He's related to Henry VIII. They spectacularly fall foul of Henry VIII. All the papers are confiscated during a treason trial. And what you have, though, is a wonderful uh, window onto the life and imaginative world of a 10-year-old boy. And some of his letters are just really sort of generic. He's obviously writing them as a form of educational exercise. But occasionally, there's this sort of sparkly little precocious personality uh, that comes through. And there are a couple of letters um, that show him up to real tricks. One of them, uh, he describes to his mother uh, the way in which uh, the man who's looking after him, his tutor, basically won't let any of the children Uh, send letters out written by themselves. Um, He complains that the tutor mistreats them. And so he says to his mother, if you don't receive a letter that is sealed with my signet ring, you will, you know, do not believe that it has been sent by me. It's my tutor who's written in my stead. And of course, this gets her totally upset. Um, The other example involves a glove. And he's giving his mother, uh, he writes his mother a letter saying um, that he is sending her a pair of gloves, but he doesn't trust the letter bearer to give her the proper gloves and thinks that the expensive gloves that he sent her, uh, he'll keep himself and give her an inferior pair. And so he writes in this letter describing the gloves um, so that she'll know whether that whether the letter bearer is a thief or not. So you get this sort of sense of this real sort of precocious personality. So that's another of my sort of favourite people, James Bassett.
1: I've just realised who mine would be. It just <laughs> took, took me a while, and Ellie surprised me. It is the it is the mother of someone called Sir John Killigrew, and Sir John Killigrew was he was captain of Pendennis Castle in Falmouth, and he was also the head of a commission set up by Elizabeth to investigate and police piracy in the West Country. But he is the biggest pirate himself of Cornish Piracy. (laughs) Anyway, it runs in the family. Um, um, All all of them have been pirates, but his mum in particular, she's famed for leading a boarding party in person. And these guys um, are a a bunch of rogues, but they, um, I reckon, yeah, John Killigrew's mum I'd like to meet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Very good. And to finish us up, I wonder if you could both give us one... Fact that you were most surprised to learn about Tudor society.
1: Oh, uh, they used church bells to communicate, but uh, pr- primarily um, we used for things like propaganda and the, um, the 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 strength with which the bells were rang, um, um was evidence of how you supported the um whether it was the death of someone or the birth of someone or the marriage of someone so so it's this idea of of bells being used to communicate ideas and also being linked to um state propaganda i well,
2: thought that was fascinating nothing surprises me about uh, tudor society really i think um no nothing nothing really i've i've lived with tudor society so long um that i find it very hard to be Um, surprised at all. Although probably one of the things that surprised me recently was doing some work on cannibalism. Um, And actually, you know, eating the remains of people um, was, you know, was was part and parcel of Tudor medicine. So I think that was probably one of the most weird things that I'd come across. Um, And there's there's an example of um, people eating bits of Egyptian mummies, uh, for example. So I always found that rather bizarre but I I think I think one of the things about Tudor society is that it is so it is often so alien from us. Sam talked about the the shared experiences that we have that the past is a sort of you know is a familiar country but in many ways it's what it's what is so different from us Uh, I think it's extraordinary.
0: That was Sam Willis and James Daybell from Histories of the Unexpected. Their Homeschooling History podcast series, with episodes on topics including beards, lunchboxes, shadows, rainbows and insults, is available now. You can find that, as well as a range of other Histories of the Unexpected podcasts, on your podcast feed or at historiesoftheunexpected.com. Sam and James have also got a Histories of the Unexpected book on the Tudors. That's out now, published by Atlantic. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday when we'll be discussing a failed assassination attempt on Abraham Lincoln.